0: Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. We're talking politics again, as we so often do. Today, though, we're talking about another book. There's another book that's been written about the, the Kenny years, the... the, the you can use all kinds of different descriptive words to describe the state of Alberta politics over the last couple of years. But this one, its uh, it really kind of tries to, to break things down, to dismantle things, to take a look at what's been going on in the background. It's a happy book. I believe the title is Sunshine and Rainbows. No, no. The title of the book is Anger and Angst. We're very excited to be joined today by the two... I'm going to go with editors slash contributors, authors. It's a compilation piece. Uh, we're joined today by Trevor W. Harrison, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Lethbridge. He's the author, co-author, and co-editor of nine books, numerous journal articles, chapters, and reports, and a freaking contributor to public media. I'm reading this off the back of the book, by the way. We also have Ricardo Acuna, who is executive director of the Parkland Institute since 2002. He's spoken and written extensively on energy policy, democracy, privatization, and the Alberta economy, thank, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, They're nice to comments. be here,
1: Nate.
0: So, before we get into the the, the very happy book, um, if we could just do, if I can get a little bit of each of you to tell you, uh, that was a very cursory bio that I gave there. So, if we can uh, tell us a little bit of your story, Ricardo. I'm going to start with you. What's what's the deal with Ricardo?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been doing Alberta politics for a very, very long time. Um, I, I uh, went to the U of A, got a degree in political science, and uh, kind of started after university in, in international development and did a lot of work. Uh, I'm, I'm Latin American by birth. Um, so I did a lot of social justice kind of uh, community development work, got a little um, dissatisfied with the, kind of the working and the operations of many of the international NGOs, And decided maybe my energies were better placed doing that work here locally and have been involved in various capacities um, in politics and political analysis and writing media uh, in the province since then. So uh, I've been for um, coming up on 21 years at the Parkland Institute, small uh, think tank, progressive think tank based at the University of Alberta, perhaps Alberta's only real progressive think tank. Um, and uh, yeah, we've been trying to play a part in broadening the scope of dialogue and discourse when it comes to politics in Alberta, and uh, put out policy alternatives.
0: Perfect, Trevor. What's your your political your, your political life's journey?
1: Uh, good, good way of putting that. Well, I I can say uh, one thing. I was born in Edmonton uh and uh i'm actually rather proud of the fact that i've lived in from north to south i live now in lethbridge alberta really close to the american border of course But i lived and worked for a number of years also in fort mcmurray and so uh and i did my masters at the university of calgary and my phd at uh at edmonton so i've kind of lived in parts of the province i've been educated in parts of the province and uh and seen the province and Uh, My original doctoral work was actually uh, looking at populism, at that time, the Reform Party. And, uh, of course, in terms of the current government, uh, it's very much informed by the kind of populism of the Reform Party and subsequent Wild Rose. Besides that, I also was director of Parkland Institute for 10 years, where Ricardo and I became uh, good friends and colleagues. And uh, so that's kind of my background, and I'm interested in all things political uh, in this province, outside the province, and also internationally.
0: So I guess that before we get too far into the book, I got to ask, the Parkland Institute, you guys have gotten some shade. Danielle Smith has made uh, a couple of, of pretty uh, not so subtle digs towards the Parkland Institute. Why? Why is that? Why is it? Why do you think it is that uh, it is? It is a A target, some might say a polarizing institute. What is it about it?
2: I think we've, you know, since the beginning, we've we've really uh, worked hard to provide alternatives, well-researched, peer-reviewed policy alternatives and policy analysis. And um, we have, for the most part, tried to speak from a different perspective than that what's offered up by most of uh, think tanks, most of mainstream media, in the province and that uh, gets to people that bugs people and it's very easy um, to try and discount groups who don't have this kind of uh, academic rigor in their work uh, it's a little tougher with Parkland so, so Ralph Klein loved uh, to attack Parkland at one point in 1999 he actually tried to have us closed down writing a, pre- a letter to the president of the university demanding that we be shut down right so it's a long history in Alberta of people pointing at us because we're doing good work. That's a kind of, uh, whenever one of these premiers or politicians attacks us, we do very well by people calling us up and wanting to read our stuff even more. So it, we challenge them, uh, we call them out, we we purposefully try to present alternatives and uh, clearly it works.
1: I, yes. I would add to that too, that I think, you know, the history of this province, and it goes back to one of the things we talk about in the book, is that uh, oil and gas over determines the politics of the province. So you don't have a lot of different voices. Uh, Alberta has historically been a very corporatist province where the media, politics, those who run the economy have been very closely intertwined. And so as Ricardo says, they don't like alternatives. They don't like a lot of questions. And uh, given that this has been governed by a very conservative parties for most of the years, Anytime someone raises questions, they tend to be fairly hostile to those alternative voices.
0: I mean, it's hard to ask for a better pivot to the book, but given that you do, the Parkland Institute does seem to provoke a healthy amount of anger and angst. Let's talk about the book. So uh, what is the book? Why, Why is the book a thing? What do people need to know about the book?
1: I guess the maybe a starting point for this is to, of course, in 2015, we had an NDP elected uh, government, shocking a lot of conservatives. And out of that, of course, over the next few years, there was a lot of talk about the NDP being an accidental government, that the only reason they won was because the conservative right was split up. When uh, Jason Kenney put together those two wings, traditional conservatives and the Wild Rose faction in 2017, uh, and then went on to win a victory in 2019, our sense, Ricardo and I had many conversations about this, was politics in the province was really changing. And what was going to happen over the next four years now that the UCP had won, that turn of events, of course, we could never have predicted, certainly the pandemic and everything else, but it became a kind of fascinating trajectory. And so we very early on said, well, we need to start thinking about a book, but not bringing it out really until close to the next election. And we held a series of uh, symposia really with interested parties, writers, academics, non-academics, and some observers. To uh, talk about what was going on. We weren't even totally sure at first, I think, that there would be a book. That was our hope. But it was really to get a handle on the, the strange trajectory of politics in the province. And it became stranger, of course, over the next four years, uh, as we see. And so that's kind of the the beginnings of the book and why we've ended up with it right now.
2: Ricardo, anything you want to add to that? Well, I think the, the the big part of it, too, is that that kind of sense that this was something different, right, that we were going to get policy from a different perspective. We saw even even during the NDP's time in office that, yeah, you know, they were quite activists. They changed a lot of policies, but they didn't really go for anything super radical, right? Like we didn't see any far left wing policies coming out of the NDP, whereas the indications from early on, especially the way that you know, we often call it a merger, but it really was a takeover of the progressive conservatives by the UCP. There was this kind of sense that we were going to get something different, that we were going to get some policy from the far right and unapologetically and unabashedly we were going to get policy from the far right. And we wanted to make sure that we were able to document that because it kind of, it was new for Alberta. I mean, even even Ralph Klein in his most neoliberal days kind of maintained that center-right sensibilities in how he navigated and checked in regularly with the electorate, it was clear that Jason Kenney wasn't that person. He wasn't going to check in. He wasn't going to be guided by anybody on the center, you know, and even electorate, like he wasn't, he didn't really seem to care in that Mm -hmm. regard. It's just a certain arrogance about it. So we knew the policies that we were going to get were going to be something we hadn't seen before, or at least more extreme than we'd seen before.
1: And, And the other thing, and it gets to maybe the title of the book is Uh, we we saw this party that emerged under Jason Kenney as a very ideological party, very libertarian, wedding itself to populism. But in order to push many of these very radical policies, what it was really doing uh, to a degree we had never seen before in this province was mobilizing anger, hatred, fear, hysteria. I mean, they, you know, so the book actually starts off in the first introductory chapter, talking about Jason Kenney's speech on the night that they actually won. And they had won an overwhelming victory. And yet, from the tone of his speech, you'd swear they were still on the warpath, that they were, you know, they had enemies to be utterly destroyed. This was not normal politics. This was the politics of, of you know, uh, you know slash and burn. And, uh, and. Part of Jason Kenny's legacy, subtitle of the book, is how the politics in the province have continued to be incredibly angry uh and, and hostile and fearful. And that is a long-term legacy that it seems, uh, unfortunately, has continued into
0: today. It's remarkable. Like, I'm... It's remarkable that you bring that up, especially given the date that we're recording this on. So for anybody who's listening to this in a couple of days, uh, this is being recorded on April 10th. And we just got word that the Premier of Alberta is there's apparently an investigation being done by the ethics commissioner for whatever that's worth. Um, but that comes on the heels of, you know, we, we saw some deeply polarized rhetoric, rhetoric from Mr. Kenny. And then we got Daniel Smith and... The the level of the, the term that's being thrown around these days of rage farming that's been going around and, and misinformation and disinformation that we're seeing coming straight out of the premier's office is, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I cannot remember a time in Alberta history, short of going all the way back to Bible Bill, where we've had this level of screed, for lack of a better term.
2: There have been, I mean, you know, there have been flashes of it for sure, right? Like we saw, you know, if you think about Ralph Klein around the whole Kyoto Protocol and, and the kind of initial climate change policies very, very effectively turned positive, uh, what was positive <laughs> approach, positive public sentiment in Alberta about the need to do something into um, anger at Ottawa for imposing these climate change policies on Alberta. Like so we see it regularly every time a politician has gotten into some trouble every time a politician's numbers have gone down in terms of popularity we see you know this direction at Ottawa and uh, but it's not been sustained to the level that it has and it hasn't been as broad as it has since Kenny right i mean with Kenny it wasn't just Trudeau it wasn't just Ottawa it was environmentalists it was indigenous communities it was teachers it was nurses it was doctors it was i mean it was spread wide there was enough hatred and anger to go around for everybody. And I think that's that's particularly new.
1: The the other thing I think is is we can also treat the anger and the hatred in a, in an interesting way as being an index to the fact that politics in the province is actually changing. I mean, there's no point in getting terribly angry when you would take 73 out of 77 seats or whatever, and you've so destroyed any chance of opposition. Uh, But what really did upset the apple cart here was the NDP winning in 2015. And so the hysteria began after that, and you see it today. The anger directed at Ottawa also finds its mirror directed on internal politics within the province. And so the anger is a reflection of the fact that a lot of people who have run the province forever are really concerned that they won't be able to run the province unopposed forever. And so they have turned their guns on a huge swath of Alberta society. Uh, you know, Certainly unions are, are fair game, even though unions are the smallest part of anything in all of Canada here. Intellectuals, nurses, doctors, uh, community groups... You name it, uh, uh, people of uh, different sexual orientations. It's like everybody is fair game because you're opposed to us. And so one of our arguments is that what you're seeing here is, is very much, despite all the arguments about Justin Trudeau and Ottawa, this is an internal fight. This is a civil war in Alberta over the future of the province. And one side has unleashed the dogs of war on everybody else here.
0: I want to I wanna dig into that a little bit, because one of the themes that the, the book sort of touches on, because you, you talked about the, the folks who have had control for a good long period of time. To be clear, who are you talking about when you say that?
2: It's, I mean, it's very much this, this kind of um, elite, this, these holders of economic and political power that in Alberta is very much based in the oil and gas industry and what revolves around it. In, in his chapter in the book, Kevin Taft um, speaks to that, right? Like how early in the Klein years, um, these folks essentially took over government, ran, right? Like they ran and advised the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Energy, the Ministry of the Environment. Like these folks were making and writing most of the policy that was coming forth. They had not just insider knowledge, but direct access to the policy levers of the province. And increasingly, that power base has been challenged. And it's not just an Alberta thing, but they're seeing it challenged globally, right? And and that's some of that response, that kind of uh flailing and fighting for, for these these positions of power that this this group of folks has held uh for this long.
1: And, and one of the things, again, that uh so this is the populist part of that. There's a lot of people who will vote for UCP who frankly they are not. The most powerful. A lot of them are, in fact, fairly poor. They're, you know, working class people who are afraid of losing their jobs. They live in rural areas. They get terrible services often from the government. But uh, through the use of kind of right-wing populist uh, memes, they are convinced against, frankly, their own interests that they should support the UCP. So it's It's really the elites of the province have found ways to convince people against their own interests because somehow they are conservative, that you should keep voting for these people. And the anger and that angst is frankly interfering with people coming to terms with the kind of province Alberta is becoming and must become and against their own interests again. And so if If I guess there was one hope out of the book that we would have is that people critically think about what is it you're actually voting for here? Is this really in your own interest to keep doing this? This is 80 years virtually of conservative voting in this province where people just do it without thinking about who they vote for. I
0: want to I want to dig into that word that you both both use there. If you could, I mean, we hear the word populism being bandied around more and more these days with good reason. But for, for the audience, what, how would you define populism? Simplest terms
1: is to say that populism sets up a kind of really false argument in a sense between there is the people, which unfortunately is a pretty nebulous term. So who belongs to the people is, is a good political point versus the elites and in the UCP's definition uh, and in conservative parties here generally they don't see themselves or promote themselves as members of the elite. The elite are intellectuals uh, overpaid union workers or public sector workers and very much again the liberals in Ottawa. These are the elites that are always holding you back from uh, your your place in the sun or taking it away on you. And so the UCP and consecutive conservative governments have been able to say we're on the side of the people against these groups. But again, those are nebulous terms because at any moment you could be part of the people and the next moment being discarded and said, you're really not one of us, right? And that's, again, part of the dynamics of, unfortunately, of Alberta politics.
2: I think the important thing about populism is, is to keep in mind that populism itself is not left or right. It's not the particular domain of any one type of political ideology, right? I mean, we've yeah. seen we've seen in the prairies, uh, you know, Tommy Douglas, uh, built kind of this populist groundswell that propelled him, um, you know, to power and and brought us things like healthcare and stuff, but that was also the result of very much a populist movement and a populist groundswell growing so it's right now what we're seeing is a very a very angry far right type of populism but we can't we can you know if you look historically we have to see that populism can be used by any political group for the purposes of of moving ideas or moving power forward
1: yeah it's it's very much a vehicle for mobilization and ricardo is absolutely right of course social credit was a populist party But of course, many of its policies verged from both the right and the left and social credit wanted public health care repeatedly in its early years. So, yeah, it's it's an unideological thing and it's just simply something that politicians can use of either right or left.
0: I think it's interesting that you bring up the whole, uh, the way that the conservatives in the province have historically been able to set themselves up, especially with the UCP, especially with the current incarnation of the UCP, with this, uh, hey, we're just like you, we're not the politicians. I mean, every time Daniel Smith goes on her radio show and she talks about her health spending account, it's never... In the context of anything other than, well, you know, politicians, they get this health spending account. The public sector, they get this health spending account. And I just think it should be fair that everyone gets it. And every time she says that, there's this little voice in my head that's going, does she know she's the premier? She's a politician. Like, she's the top politician in the province. So it's it's fascinating. Why do you think that they're able to execute that? Why do you think it is that people don't go, but you're the premier? I
2: think this is this is the, the history of the, the party now, right? Goes back to uh, the reform party and this ability to be to sell themselves and present themselves as non-politicians, right? That that kind of that history of grievance, that history of we're under attack, kind of they use that we, right? We, Alberta's workers, Alberta's working class, Alberta's oil industry is under attack by elites. And it's very much that, that ability that populist ability to bring folks on side. And that's been the trajectory of it all along. We saw it, you know, with Preston Manning early on with the reform party, we see it still today with Pierre Polyev with his multiple properties and his, you know, ridiculous pension and ridiculous income identifying as one of the working class people and how he feels and understands that people can't afford rent and can't afford homes. And it's like, no, you don't, right. But it's very much playing to that us versus them. That's, Kind of the key of the us versus them, and if you're one of us, then you can take your shots at the academics and the elites and the bureaucrats and and come out unscathed.
1: One of the the things in political science, political scientists like to talk about uh, political culture, and again, it's a bit nebulous. But the the political culture of Alberta has sort of been formed again over a very long period of time. Predates Klein; it goes back. Like I said the number of conservatives who get elected unopposed uh particularly in rural areas uh federally and provincially for a long time so what you have here in the province is an identity that is forged around three things and it's hard to unlock that one is oil and gas and so every time there is a a downturn in oil and gas and a perceived threat to it it's like you're attacking me personally that you're going after oil and gas the other thing is uh Alberta's identity. We are a oil and gas producing province. And the third part of that is, and the conservatives are the natural governing party of the province. So to unlock a kind of quasi-nationalist Alberta spirit, oil and gas and conservatism, those three things fit together. and, And until they're kind of dislodged in a way that people start to see beyond it, that my identity is not necessarily tied to oil and gas. It doesn't have to be. It can be tied to other things. It doesn't have to be tied to a single uniform political state, the Conservatives. And hey, Alberta is part of a pretty broad and, and, and very fortunate confederation that you also can see yourself as Albertan, Canadian, Western Canadian, whatever, right? But a lot of UCP supporters see themselves as those three things.
2: Not everybody can pull it off. I mean, even mm-hmm. even just in Alberta's recent history, right? Alison Redford couldn't pull off the We the People thing, right? Yeah. Dinning Dinning couldn't put off and you know sitting at a table with five rich guys saying what the you know, implications of the election outcome would be, couldn't pull it off. So I think it's 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 not an automatic that if you rise to power within the Conservative Party or the the, the right that you can actually pull off that we the people thing because some people just can't sell it.
1: it, it and in fact, it's a really interesting thing thinking about it. Would Even though Peter Lougheed has an almost kind of messianic status in Alberta today, Peter Lougheed might not actually sell as well in today's Alberta because this is a guy who was very smart, very patrician, uh, and uh, part of... People liked them because they put them on a pedestal. That was not Ralph Klein. It's not Daniel Smith. And it wasn't even Jason Kenney who didn't pull it off quite as well. But they speak a kind of, I'm, a, I'm a, the, the person next door who you wouldn't mind having a beer with. Nobody ever said, hey, I'd feel comfortable having a beer with Peter Loughey because he's way too far above me
0: when you talk about the ability to be able to r- relate to the common folk as if they themselves were common folk, I'm curious, can either of you gentlemen think of a politician who's able to do that better than Smith in Alberta in the last couple of decades? Because one of the things that's fascinating to me, at least is it seems like she can use words and combinations that are to a critical reading I would use the term incomprehensible. Um, but she is able to garner this adulation from a not insignificant amount of the province. That looks at her and goes, ah, oh, but she gets it. She, she has a very empathetic tone. She's able to make people feel like she, they're Like, one of the things that we've been talking about on the show for the last couple of weeks is this whole idea that I think people are underestimating Danielle Smith and just how dangerous she can be. Because when you put her in front of someone, she can make them feel like they matter in a way that I don't know that you've seen. You can say a whole lot of politicians in Alberta have done. Am I wrong on that uh, interpretation?
2: No, for sure. There's and it's a big part of that too is is her background with talk radio, right? I mean, it seems in Alberta that that kind of that that talk radio has um set the tone of political discourse, brought people together. And as such, that helps her with the she's one of us thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because of, of her presence on talk radio. And we've seen it, and she's got that ability to just to just use language in that way. And even if even if it's talking about um you know whether you die of cancer or not is entirely within your control or you know those kind of things it's still very much uh she's just one of us she's just saying stuff she's saying stuff that we've all thought at some point and people are being too hard on her so it's a it's a yeah it's a very powerful ability it does actually you know in many ways harken back to to Klein. i think he was maybe the last one that had that strong an ability to play that game um, it harkens back to that kind of ability of him to just speak, speak frankly, and things that that would horrify previous generations of politicians and political leaders from all parties, he was able to get away with and she's able to get away with. And I think that that thread of being media folks, of being plain spoken, of all those things is a common one.
1: It's it's actually quite striking how many uh politicians today actually do come out of media. It used to be, of course, out of you know, religious backgrounds, but That media training, as Ricardo says, is really important. She does it extremely well. And even when she's categorically wrong, as she is quite often factually about things, people say, Yeah, but I'll forgive her that because her heart's in the right place. Right? And, And so there's this interesting thing where she's actually really ideological, but she actually doesn't know quite often the, the, the nuts and bolts of the ideology. She just has this deep feeling. And one of the quotes we actually use in the first chapter is she says, I have opinions about everything. It, she said that on a, about regards to talk show. And yes, she does have opinions about everything, but they're very rarely backed up by anything that is substantive. But her followers love her because she has all these opinions.
0: It is. It is like I said. It is remarkable to me how she is able to um, present her thoughts in such a way that that people are able to. I don't think I can think of a politician where people have been able to look at that politician and interpret exactly what they want to interpret out of that politician in the way that that Danielle Smith is able to 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 manifest that but i wanted to ask you know we were talking earlier about the 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 elites and the the oil and gas folks being able to influence policy not just by saying hey this would be great but by actually being in the room do you think Danielle Smith is a a continuation of that? We've seen her put forward program proposals like the R Star thing, which is is very clearly a uh, free money. Um, is she part of that culture, or is she just a a, a useful person? I mean, Ooh. it's
2: funny, right? Because this is this is something that I've looked at that a fair bit in terms of how the paradigm um, in Alberta shifts over that period of time when. Um, when the, you know, the Forbear the Wild Rose is actually formed. And it's a result of, um, in many ways, Stelmax going ahead with a royalty review after the 2006 leadership race, right? And, and what happens at that point is oil money in Alberta, oil power in Alberta wants to send a message to the PCs to back off of royalties. And the way they do that is they find a smart, articulate, well-positioned person um, and start funding the, the, the work of the Wild Rose Party and start funding her in many ways. It's that oil and gas elite that create Danielle Smith and the Wild Rose Party back then, and that builds in. So yeah, she's, she's benefited from that in the past, and she knows the community. She knows who the power players are. She knows who the influential ones are, and, and can still lean on them.
1: Yeah, she's, as Ricardo says, she really was a creation of the oil industry and while we've been where it was, were it not for that oil money. One of the things the NDP actually did, and I think it is a positive thing in terms of Alberta's political culture, is the constraints on, uh, on money going directly into the parties. Now, money can get around that. The oil money still can support all kinds of things. But uh, I used to go over the contributions and it was astonishing during the real conservative years how much money came from oil and gas. They can't do that now. But there's another interesting thing that is going on here. And that's that the really big money in oil, really big oil, to some extent, it sees the writing on the wall and has started to pull out of Alberta so that some of that oil and gas money now is more in the small caps. The uh, supply companies, many of these are situated in rural Alberta. So it's, it's a slightly different uh, elite structure now in oil and gas than we would have seen back 20, 30 years ago. Those are the people who actually supported Laheed and Getty, uh, the big bucks that came in. But now it's it's a slightly different oil and gas industry, and it's very much situated in uh, rural Alberta, but still in Calgary. And that's where UCP finds a lot of its support.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to me. Anytime Daniel Smith makes a major project announcement or, or alludes to a major project announcement or policy announcement, we've learned over here that the first question is, OK, so who's getting paid? Uh, and you can almost always track it back to somebody who is either currently involved in in her machinations, or who was historically involved. Cough, trained to bamf cough. Uh, there's there's lots of examples where it, it's it's so clearly laid out. It's really quite stunning. Um, I want to get back to the book though, because as much as I am enjoying this rabbit hole, we're here to talk about the book. So I warned you each I was going to do this favorite chapters and
1: why oh i think uh ricardo's already named one of them kevin taft's uh chapter dealing with uh the history of the oil and gas industry and elite power in the province is a really good one i think the uh there's one chapter actually about uh of, uh indigenous uh, peoples back to the future it's uh, called the ucp's indigenous policies Yale Belanger at the University of Lethbridge and David Newhouse, really good uh, because I think Indigenous issues are clearly really important for Canada and and for Alberta in its future. Uh so many other ones. Um, the uh, what uh, what other ones here? I'm just kind of quickly scanning here. Yeah, well, so well,
2: Trevor thinks maybe I'll jump in because I think for me, um, I mean, they're all fantastic chapters, but. The ones that stand out for me are the ones that talk about the things that don't often get a lot of coverage when we have these political discussions, right? So for sure, um, the book on Indigenous Policy by Belanger and Newhouse. Um, The other one for me is Lise Gattel's chapter on gender and um, the UCP's uh, work around gender. And then uh, Irfan Chaudhry, his his chapter called uh, Pepper Spray for All, the UCP's approach to countering race-based hate in Alberta, like these are issues, you know, it's fairly typical when we get close to an election and stuff. We talk about health care, we talk about the economy, taxation, energy, all those things. Right. Mm-hmm. But, the you know, gender policy, um, anti-racism policy, those kind of things don't get talked about. And I love that we've got such strong chapters on those topics in the book.
1: I'll, I'll throw in one other two along that line, and it's pertains to something we've already talked about. And that's Letitia Chapman and Roger Epps' uh, chapter on rural Alberta. And I think there is an unfortunate um, uh, tendency to just lump rural Alberta together. It's just kind of homogenous, but I mean, there's, there's small and medium-sized cities within that. And uh, I think to understand, I think for anyone who actually wants to uh, deal with progressive politics in the province, it's really important to come to terms with what rural Alberta is. How do we define it? Who are the people out there? These are not, as I suggested before, people who are obdurately conservative and right-wing. Many of them are just plain scared. And if you want to actually change the politics of the province, you have to go to where those people are actually living, uh, how they see the province and the anxieties that they face. And so, Anger and angst again really go together
0: in a lot of rural Alberta, and that chapter really, I think, nails it. The the rural Alberta piece is fascinating for me because I I grew up in rural Alberta. Uh, up until my early teen years, I lived in uh, rural Alberta. I, my formative years were spent in northern Alberta, and it's it's amazing to me. It's very striking how the urban centers have this perspective of rural alberta that's incredibly monolithic and i think that that's part of the the problem in regards to addressing the schism that seems to exist between rural and urban alberta and what the goals are uh for for rural and urban alberta that's a lot of burbs in that sentence there um what are some things does the book I haven't gotten to that chapter yet I'll be totally honest I've been working my way through it but it's 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 over 500 pages so what's a boy to do um but are there are there any things that you gentlemen would recommend In order for that schism to start to be closed a little bit, how can people start to have a conversation that's about all of Alberta, that all Albertans can have and be involved in, as opposed to having these two separate conversations, which we're certainly seeing very clearly divided in the polling results for what those are worth, that have been released so far?
1: We've talked here, actually, a lot about, seems to me, uh, Daniel Smith's magic with the population, and a lot of it comes down to terminology, and And the words that you use, I think that you know uh, progressives need to watch that they are not perceived or actually talking down to people, and that goes whether they're in rural or urban Alberta. But I think it's very easy for the UCP then say, "Well, you know those people in urban areas don't care about you or they don't understand you." and uh, so I think progressives really have to watch uh, how they they enunciate things. And also, I think some really practical policies that actually address those very real concerns in in rural Alberta. And I don't think progressive parties, and this includes the NDP, have have done a very good job of reaching out. It's very easy to stick within your own kind of urban enclave and not do a good job of reaching out to the rest of the province. And uh, so I think that's a really important thing needs to be done.
2: Part of it is, yeah, I mean, both both um, the NDP and the UCP in this election seem to have, they're not working on rural Alberta at all. They're actually not addressing the issues and talking about the issues, right? The NDP, because they think it's a no-win zone for them, and the UCP, because they think they've got it locked down. So I think that's part of it. One of the things that Trevor and I talk about in the conclusion is this this kind of false narrative of polarization that that, that exists out there, right? That people say... People assume that Alberta has become polarized between these two extremes. And when you actually look and talk to folks and, and, and see what's being done around values in Alberta and what people want to see from their leadership and stuff, most Albertans, it's a standard distribution, right? And the majority are in this big, like, hump right in the middle. But it serves the party's electoral interests right now to push division, to identify each other as radical, to identify each other as extreme. And they're focusing all their energy on that. Nobody has actually presented anything resembling a coherent vision for the province, right? Anything anything constructive or positive in terms of a suite of policies that will get us somewhere. And I think in many ways, that's, that's up to Albertans to push back on that. And that's part of what we hope the book will do is generate some of those conversations because um, Albertans aren't there. The parties want them to be there. And if Albertans can push back on that, maybe we can start getting some actual positive engagement and positive visioning from the parties rather than
0: just anger and angst. Okay. I want to get your, your gentleman's thoughts on uh, the, the new not-party party, party uh, that is dominating a lot of the conversation and certainly claims to be influencing a lot of the major events uh, that we're seeing unfold in Alberta, the removal of Jason Kenney, the installation or election of of Daniel Smith the UCP board um, the folks at take back Alberta this is a, this seems to be a, a new kind of beast and i don't think that there's a whole lot of people who who know how to to deal with it address it what to do with it i mean the the we were talking on our show last night about the fact that the director of uh, the president of take back Alberta appears to be Married to one of the chief narrative drivers at True North, and there there is clearly coordination that's happening inside of their Telegram group. How do Albertans navigate that kind of thing? Do you think I'll start with Ricardo?
2: Yeah, I mean this is this is um, one of the th- this is one of the impacts of actually the the NDP's legislation to ban corporate donations to the parties was the creation of of very much American style um, uh, PACs, right? And and this is one of them. So, what it's done in many ways is taken the stuff that used to happen in the back rooms, the stuff that used to happen in the basements before party meetings and, and those kind of things, and brought them to the forefront and put a lot of money in their hands. And this so the kind of gamesmanship and stuff that, that's being driven by them is not new. It's just on a much more visible and a much larger scale than it has been in the past. And and I think there's been what's happened is that there's been this confusion created um, through the existence of, of things like rebel news and and some of these these advocacy groups online, this confusion created between what's news, right, and what's propaganda. And, and I think that's that's something that that we've lost um, the key to navigating, and we've lost the, the ability to navigate as a society. In, in doing that, so I think that's one of the biggest challenges is to actually do some of that work to regain that difference in understanding between news, commentary, analysis and and propaganda, because so much of what we talk about in terms of anger and angst is actually being driven by these these propaganda arms. And like you said, the connections between groups like take back Alberta and the Freedom Convoy folks and and like even Rebel News, right? I mean, it's it's the interplay between all of these groups when you start to look at it, it's all coming from the same place. Everybody's using the same scripts. Everybody's using the same words. And we've lost the ability, maybe the interest in navigating that. I think part of it is because of the way that social media amplifies certain voices. Um, But I think a large part of it too is that you hear these things repeated enough times you see them on Twitter, you see them on Facebook, you you know, you know hear them from some even mainstream media commenters, you see the same use of words and the same use of ideas, that it just starts to become this, this kind of accepted truth that, that this is what it is and this is how things are. And I think, um, I don't know, I don't know if it's more media training, I don't know if it's um, encouraging alternate voices that actually engage people in, in two-way discourse and dialogue rather than just passive consumers of, of this stuff but um yeah it's getting frightening out there
1: well, one of the peculiarities of uh Alberta politics particularly again and I'll use the term rural just because it's a uh, heuristically useful um is that there's a lot of writings though in the in the province historically where the fight has not been during the election it's actually been in getting the nomination and so uh it, it's it's kind of proof of the fact that if you have a really dedicated, um, aggressive, well-organized minority that you can kind of seize the terrain. And so what we see is quite often, and and we've seen it in the past lots of times, but in the case of Take Back Alberta, it seems that they've decided we can get our people into being the nominate candidates, we can take over boards it's not reflective of the wide population and not even, in many cases, a lot of traditional conservatives would be appalled. But what they're counting on is the fact that once you get that, nobody will oppose you, <laughs> that you've you've basically won the election as soon as you get that nomination, and the board will assist in getting that nomination. So the only way to really break free of that, and, and one of the things we actually argue in the concluding chapter is that. Conservatism needs to really think about what it is any longer. It's not clear. And that the the body politic could probably benefit from something that looks like a legitimate conservative party at this point, but it has been veering farther and farther to the right with even more minority interests seizing the field because they know they can get away with it because there is no pushback from conservatives themselves let alone from other progressive forces. And that's actually what's happening, in it, it seems, in a number of the
0: ridings. Yeah, I mean, certainly in, in Calgary, we saw uh, a sitting minister say, I'm out of the election, so long, thanks for all the fish. And then as soon as a opportunity to be appointed opened up, I'm back in! <laughs> so in A more it's- winnable riding, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 very telling. I think it's very telling how the 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 real power seems to lie in the in the nominations. Um, and I just wanted to I think what, what you said there Ricardo about the the media pieces is, is critically important because I I go back to the Alberta Prosperity Project debates where we saw this like horrifying game of telephone get played out in real time where a certain Dark Universe version of Caillou decided to write a story about Justin Trudeau's climate police and the new prison that they were building in Winnipeg, and that got repeated all the way up to the debate where Dr. Modry then repeated it, and we had the the UCP leadership, some of the UCP leadership candidates, commenting on this thing as if it was real, when it never existed, but because of the repetition and the, the fact that these far-right media, oh, what was the word you used? You used a word that was just like, bang on. I'm going to have to go back and listen, like save it and write it down all everywhere. But you used a word to describe them, and they use each other as force multipliers where we see um, the repetition of the repetition of the repetition. And so I'm, I'm I'm really curious how we put the cork back in on that.
2: Yeah. Well, and it has implications, right? Like if you look at that that same story, that same piece about the environmental police and stuff has actually resulted in real policy in Saskatchewan and Alberta to ban federal inspectors from, you know, encroaching on private property. Like it's, it's really, really something. I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe we need more or better media regulation, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of who gets to call themselves media, who gets, to to participate in stories, maybe I don't know, right? We've seen we've seen that utilized in in very nefarious ways in other places as well, right? Where where governments will take regulation of the media as a way of keeping certain people and ideas and, and writers out from getting information. So I think it's it's tough. I think the, the most important thing is um, we really need to do a better job of of just that, that media awareness and media education, uh, especially given our media game has changed significantly um in the last 20 years and i don't think the way we teach um public awareness public um policy citizenship in schools has changed to reflect that so we're we're teaching 1970s style citizenship in you know 2023 style communications world and that gap is is becoming ever more dangerous
1: if if there's Maybe one positive light of all this of just talking about here is the more that uh, fringe groups are able to seize the day and get themselves a nomination, the more that people also start to realize that the person they've actually nominated is so far out there uh, that they just cannot—they're not electable. Uh, it, I've I've said to people actually, it's interesting the. Wild Rose really took over the traditional Conservative Party, kind of shunted those people to the side. And as we say in the book, a lot of traditional Conservatives are probably feeling rather homeless going into this election. Now, it would seem through Take Back Alberta and some of these nomination meetings that an even more fringy group is actually taking over Wild Rose. So how far out there can you go before a lot of people say, I just cannot vote for this party i will stay home i may not vote ndp but i'm not going to vote period that's what could happen to the party uh in in this election if some of uh, what we've seen so far takes place
0: is there anything else i'm going to give you gentlemen each open mic what do you want people to know about the book what's what's whatever you want to say um what what it's all yours well,
1: I think as Ricardo said earlier, what we're really hoping the book will do is, it certainly is is critical of the UCP, but uh, we don't leave in the first chapter untouched the NDP either. But it's really focusing on the UCP over their four years. And we're hoping the people will pick it up. They can agree, they can disagree, whatever, but that it will actually stimulate real debate around policies and the direction of this province. And if Along the way to get there, we can get people to start getting beyond the, the hysteria, the anger, uh, the fear, everything else that is interfering with having a real debate. Then I think we'll have done a small part in trying to restore something that looks like democracy in the province.
2: For sure. That's that's you know, when when you approach an election um, and, and the debates and the arguments of the day kind of take center stage you tend to kind of forget about what's come before that. You tend to forget about four years of policy about what was done, right? I was even talking to my kids the other day who started reading the book, and they're like, oh, I forgot all about that education piece, right? The curriculum piece seems like so long ago that they'd forgotten all about it. So I think that's, that's part of that contribution is, is to kind of bring back that political memory. It's a big book. It's over 500 pages. I guarantee you that every one of the chapters is ultimately digestible. Right. In one sitting, you can sit down, you can get through one chapter. It's digestible, not meant to be an academic tome. It's meant to be an accessible tome. And and we hope that people will access it and actually use it to inform how they move through and navigate the next few weeks before Election Day.
0: I mean, you, you teed up the, 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 the I think it's a seventy five dollar question. I could be wrong, but uh, talking about people accessing the book. Where do they get it? When do they get it? How does that all work?
2: Sure. They can still, they can order online from the publisher, which is blackrosebooks.com. They can order direct from there. It's now out in paperback and hardcover. So it's not just a $75 question. It's also a $35 question, if you prefer. Um, And it's starting to make its way now this week into bookstores across the province. So go to your local bookstore, ask for it. A lot of the locals don't order in advance. But if they get one or two people coming in and asking for a book, they will actually order it in for you. So um, that's, you know, people go, people have their preferred bookstores. A lot of people go to the independents, go talk to folks there and ask for it.
1: Yeah, local bookstores and also Amazon. You can order on there as well. So, yes, uh, please do. And, um, yeah, hope uh, hope it gets into everybody's hands over the next uh,
0: few weeks. Well, I really appreciate the advanced digital copy that you, you gave the show, uh, but I'm going to be ordering a paper because I just prefer reading books and paper. I take a very Vonnegutian approach to that sort of thing. Uh, um, you can see my
1: shelf back here. I still have
0: lots of paper. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm side, on both sides of what I've got going on here are bookshelves as well. So, <laughs> um, Just before I let you gentlemen go, if people want to keep up with uh, your antics, if people want to keep up with the, the Parkland Institute, how do they do that?
2: Parkland We've got blogs. All of our researcher, all of our research reports are there, downloadable for free. Um, a lot of my writings are there or linked through there. Um I'm I'm all over the place. I just uh, did a piece at the breach. Trevor's also regularly on media, regularly writing. So uh yeah, keep an eye out. Uh Rick Acuna, R-I-C-A-C-U-N-A on Twitter. Um, and uh, I don't do a lot of the engaging in the back and forths, but uh, when there's something significant, I'll post or repost.
1: And, and I don't tweet, but I'm very accessible by email. People can easily find my uh, my uh, link here, trevor.harrison at ulef, universitylethbridge.ca. Always happy to uh, respond to anybody. I will do it immediately. So
0: Awesome. Well, I want to thank you gentlemen so much for your time. I look forward to finishing the book. I look forward to getting my hands on a, a paper copy as well, because like I said, it's just something about that. I'm a, I'm a romantic, I guess, um, and uh, yeah. Look forward to seeing what uh, each of you do next, as well as what the Parkland Institute continues to do. Fantastic!
2: Thank you so much for having us, nice, Nate. mate.
0: As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here at The Breakdown, we would love it if you swung by our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash the breakdown AB and signed up for a small monthly sponsorship of the work that we're trying to do here. It is because of the support that we receive from our Patreon sponsors that we're able to continually up our game and it is tremendously appreciated. So I want to throw a big thank you out to them and you can go ahead and visit that website and join and support us as well because we need all the help we can get. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of these important conversations. And we will see you next time on The Breakdown.